You're listening to Canucks Talk, brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment, your Kubota all-star team, avenuemachinery.ca, douglaslakeequipment.com. Drancer, what's going on, man? Well, glad to be coming to you for now as the as the winds outside reach about <laughs> 60 kilometers per hour in Ontario. So, so long as the power grid holds up, I will uh, I will join you on the radio, and, and should it fail, I'll uh, figure it out. Very exciting. <laughs> very exciting. Yeah, very a lot of suspense, much like last night's Canucks game. Yeah, and it's going to be a little bit of a different show today. We will yeah. get into the the uh, what we saw from the Canucks and the the thrilling signature performance from Elias Pettersson. Uh, we're gonna we'll, we'll get into that more in detail later in the show. Of course, we should also say we're giving away a pair of tickets to the Canucks and the Sharks on December twenty seventh. So you can get your what we learned submission in with the ticket emoji. The best submission will win that pair of tickets to the Canucks and Sharks on the twenty seventh. It's also Ask Us Anything Friday. But uh, this is the last time you and I are going to be on air until the new year. So what we're going Mm. to do for the first hour today is a Canucks year in review for 2022 and no shortage of content, no shortage of content over the past calendar year, man. And, you know, I was I was prepping for this kind of during the intermissions of the game last night, and it really did just strike me like, man, there's not no we're not going to have to struggle for things to talk about at any point. In this review, but just to kind of set the scene, you know, going back almost a calendar year now, January 2022, in, into the new year, obviously Boudreaux is here, Rutherford is here as president of hockey operations as well, and the first real big event for the team is hiring Patrick Alvin as the general manager, and that was the the conclusion of, you know, about a month-long search after Jim Rutherford took in. Not a major surprise that it ended up being uh, somebody he worked with in Pittsburgh, well, and can, can, can I can go I ahead? Just back up on you. Like, um, we'll do the record scratch. Like, yes, uh, you might be sure. wondering how I got <laughs> sure. here, right? So, the calendar year of 2022 for the Vancouver Canucks opened up with a really heartwarming note. You'll recall with the story of Red Hamilton, the the equipment trainer, and the mole that was noticed on his neck a couple of months earlier by a Kraken fan. Yep. Nadia Popovici. So the year starts and the Canucks send out this tweet to identify Nadia. And of course, it becomes an international news story. Uh, just a sign of human decency, right? Like the the way that the Kraken fans behind the Canucks bench that night were beaking with Connor Garland. But there was one fan, Nadia, who who ended up, you know, pointing out to, to Red that, that he had a problematic mole on his neck. It turned out to be cancerous. His life was probably saved by her quick intervention and, and by her empathy to make sure she alerted him to it. And, you know, a couple of things going on at that time that I think are worth noting in, in the context of what came next and characterize the rest of this calendar year. One is that Elias Pettersson still wasn't going. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Elias Pettersson, when we started the year last year, still was like a a topic of widespread concern in the Vancouver market, which seems wild in the wake of what he's done over the course of the past month, but really over the course of the past 12 months. Really, in some ways, it really started the year of Patterson. It really started mid-January. Like that's the that's the big on ice thing that I'll remember from January 2022 for the Canucks. It was that's when Elias Pettersson flipped the switch, if you want to call yep. it that, and started on a tear that he's still on. That we, I mean, <laughs> that is crescendoing as we speak with what we saw against the Kraken last night, as he's established himself as one of the best players in hockey. Uh, additionally, you know, 
we entered last year still in this moment where, you know, the Omicron shutdown mm-hmm. was still significantly impacting uh, the NHL. Um, the Canucks played on New Year's Day last season and then didn't play again until January 11th. And in there, and I think this is one of those things that looms large as a, you know, a subplot to this past year. In there is that cancellation on January 8th of the game uh, that would have pit the Vancouver Canucks against the Ottawa Senators. Um, The Canucks wouldn't have been able to have fans in attendance that night and opted to postpone the game, shuffling it to late March where it became wedged into the schedule as the second leg of a back-to-back against the Dallas Stars. And so here we go, the Vancouver Canucks and the uh, Ottawa Senators, that game is postponed, and the Canucks miss that game, right? They're they're red hot at this time, right? I think they they were 8-0-1 in yes. Boudreaux's tenure when they postponed this game against uh, a relatively, you know, a team they should have beat in the Ottawa Senators, move it to the back end of the schedule, and also don't get to play for 10 days before going into Florida to play Florida, Tampa Bay, and Carolina in quick succession. All games they lose... Um, you know, when you think back to the narrow margins that ultimately were decisive in the Canucks missing the playoffs somewhat narrowly by six points, but nonetheless, last season uh, in the Boudreaux bump season in the in the Bruce, there it is season, um, you know, that to me, that decision by the organization looms large and sort of begins to like it starts the year with this notion that I that I've got increasingly of like an organization in the way of the hockey club. And to me, that is like a big yellow light, a, a big hazard light sort of flashing over the Canucks season and, and really began to flash just about as quickly as the calendar year turned to 2022. Yeah, it, it, it's a good note to remember that, yeah, they were on, as you said, the Boudreaux bump, right? The 8 and one the incredible winning streak. It felt like there was this world of possibility in the new calendar year. And then January was a bit of a tough month record-wise, and there would be there would be highs and lows for the rest of the season. But the Boudreaux bump really kind of peaked on January 1st, right? And then it was and then it <laughs> right. took a little bit of a hiatus for the rest of January. And again, there were other highs, you know, there were six of seven wins, of like course. six six-game winning streaks. There were other moments, uh, but it was that moment really coming into January of 2022 where it was is at its highest. So the again well, as well, I, and, and to sorry just to come back to this right so big picture big picture too you you brought up Alvin yeah and I want to come back to your starting point because really in a lot of ways the 2022 calendar promised renewal and change mm-hmm. when when we first entered the season right you think about all the rumors that flew for two three months about JT Miller you think about the way that the Canucks went about staffing the front office, right? So we've got the Alvin hire uh, first, like in in late January, but that's then punctuated by uh, additions of, um, you know, Derek Clancy had been hired already previously in in late December, but Alvin was the first really big hire of January 2022, and from there, you know, we go on to Cami Granado joining the organization as assistant general manager. You've got. Emily Castonguay joining yep. the organization as assistant general manager. And you've got this like promise of a new look front office, which obviously was welcome news to a Vancouver Canucks fan base uh, grown tired of what they'd seen transpire under the previous regime. And all of this is taking place even as the team c- continues to win. 
and the sort of national conversation around the Canucks boiling and bubbling in, in, in sort of the hockey news cauldron that we that we tend to dip our spoon into and, <laughs> and sip from on a regular basis, Jamie, is JT Miller. Watch for JT Miller. Yep. This is the situation. And that talk crescendos in the lead up to the trade deadline negotiations uh, effectively happening through the press, right? The New York post would, <laughs> would have something and it would be volleyed by national insiders in Canada. I mean, it was a, a heady time and, and the Miller will they, or won't they trade JT Miller conversation really felt like it dominated the first two months of the discourse as we entered 2022, which again, looking back uh, seems pretty uh, amazing considering sort of how that played out, as we know, in September, which we'll get to as we continue along yeah. uh, this look back. And just going through this process of kind of mapping out the year in review last night, and, you know, okay, January, Patrick Alvin, Pedersen turns it around, as you said, staffing the front office, all of that. And then February, really, the first thing that pops to mind is the JT Miller trade talk, right? What can they get for him? And, and don't forget, he's on a tear at this time, right? Like, he had a fantastic Crushing season. It from game one to game 82 last year. But in this moment specifically, he was absolutely on fire. And I remember it was kind of a running joke. You know, every time he'd have a big game, it was, oh, New York, you got to throw another asset into the trade, right? <laughs> and there was almost just this kind of, it felt like like a fait accompli, right? That he was was going to be dealt. Maybe that's a little bit strong, but it felt no, so it, it did. real. You know I, what I mean? I going into true. that deadline. And I, and I don't think – I think that was the sense around the league. You know, it wasn't a media-manufactured thing. You can ask, um, you know, uh, rival general managers what they'd expected at the time, and they'd tell you the same. They thought JT Miller would be gone at some point from the Vancouver organization. If not by the deadline, then by the draft. Uh, the conversation as it reached fans' ears from, from insiders was, was mostly driven by what the industry thought. Uh, not the other way around. So uh, important to note that because I, I do think the way that the Miller situation played out with him ultimately signing an extension in September was one of the big surprises of 2022. And and I think along with the, well, well, we'll get into sort of the big picture, but I think there was this sense of change coming in terms of the staffing of the new front office, in terms of uh, what would happen on the roster with with Jim Rutherford, uh, you know, now in charge of Canucks hockey operations and, and sort of one of the other big themes that I think we should develop as we consider what this year meant, how it'll be remembered, mm -hmm. what, what, what it really signaled for the Canucks is it opened with the promise of significant change and ends with a sense of here we go again. This is the same old. And, the and that's sort of one of the fascinating things to have watched played out, I think, over the past 12 months. Well, especially you go back to that moment in time, right, in February, leading into the trade deadline, and it's Jim Rutherford. And what was the talking point when Jim Rutherford came aboard, right? Trader Jim. Look how many trades he made when he was with Pittsburgh. Not afraid to pull the trigger. You know, he'll acquire, acquire a guy and then move him out a couple of months later if he doesn't like the fit. He's not afraid of big, bold moves. That was the conversation around Jim Rutherford. And then with Patrick Alvin, you know, we didn't I don't think it's we knew a lot about how the approach he would bring to being the general manager. I think it's maybe fair to say we still don't know a lot about the approach he wants to bring uh, to being a general manager, partly because of the lack of moves, the relative lack of moves, partly because of, you know, his decision to be very, very tight lipped when he does speak uh, publicly. But it was really the sensation of, OK, Jim Rutherford is here. We're going to see fireworks. Right, like we we are getting to the fireworks factory now at this trade deadline, and of course it doesn't happen. 
and it still really hasn't happened. And I think you're right. That is a big, big part of the overall story of this season. Now, there were a couple of deals, uh, or, or a few deals anyways, going into the trade deadline. And I think it is worth mentioning them for what they can, even though they're not the most significant deals. You know, we might, we're might we probably not going to be talking about them in five years when we look back on this Canucks season. But it, it, they can tell us something, at least, about how this front office operates. And, of course, the deals they did at the deadline last season, it was Tyler Mott to the New York Rangers for a fourth-round pick. And then there was the separate but related Travis Hamannick to Ottawa uh, and Travis Dermott coming to the Leafs, but a third-round pick involved in either direction there. Uh, those deals happened as well. And, I mean, you remember Travis Hamannick scored like three goals for this team in, in 2022 before he was traded, which blew my mind to remember that Travis Hamannick was playing regular minutes for this team. But anyways, it's true. Uh, what's, a, what's, what's a more amazing 2022 stat, that Travis Hamannick scored three goals for the Canucks in the calendar year 2022? Or that fourteen, the fourteenth highest scorer for the franchise over the course of the calendar year was Brad Hunt. <laughs> what oh, wow. stands out more? Anyway, that's a good one right there. That's a very good one. So as the as the winds of change blew, right? What was fascinating to watch was the Canucks would not. They were like the Black Knight in Monty Python. They would not died yep. refused to go away in a lot of ways and it was really an impressive performance at the at the end of the day and i think you know perhaps spelled false hope based on how this season has played out but also i think established something of a, of a team personality that that we continue to see from the canucks which is you know they may not play well but there's something in those jerseys where they're not necessarily out of any game sometimes. Mm -hmm. And so as the year went on and, you know, and progressed, right, we saw the Bruce Boudreaux bump fade in January only for the Canucks to, you know, get hot at home again in February, right? They salvaged that Florida trip. They moved Pedersen to the wing. He starts to play extraordinary hockey. Uh, the power, the penalty kill improves, right? Thatcher Demko finds his groove, even as the club loses faith in Yaroslav Halaka, a, a subplot we'll come back to. And as the year progresses, you know, the Canucks find ways, even when they lose three in a row or things get dicey, they, they reel off wins. And so we see that in February with a big homestand that's then punctuated by a 7-4 loss to Anaheim, yeah. right? We see the club rally from from losing three in a row uh, by going out on this East Coast swing. Or sorry, they, they, they then lose to Anaheim, and that sort of sets up this run at home. You remember the losses to Detroit. You remember the loss to the Calgary Flames, right? Just yep. like they, they begin to fade, and, and they've lost five of six heading into the trade deadline, leading into that Mott trade and the Hamannick trade. And it's like, okay, finally, the winds of change may blow. And then, and then they go out and they go to Colorado, right? They, they once again, they beat Colorado. They tie Minnesota. They beat Dallas. And then again, it's three in a row lost. Blues, Blues, Vegas. And then they reel off seven in a row again. And it was just like this seesaw of disappointment and, and um, resilience, right? The everything bagel that is this team. Right, that they can <laughs> fade so uh, inexcusably against a team like Anaheim, Detroit, Buffalo, and then go out and with their backup in net, who they really hadn't trusted for months, beat Colorado with this perfect five-on-five, -five, you know, defensive game against the Stanley Cup champs. It was 
it was an amazing time and it sort of culminates with this massive win streak, right? The, I think it's six in a row, right? Right as they'd lost three in a row, it looked like they were done. They barely had any points that they could afford to squander anymore. And they reel off six in a row, including a big victory against a Dallas Stars team at Rogers Arena that they were chasing. And that's the moment. That's the moment where they have to play that back-to-back against the Ottawa Senators, right? That rescheduled game from January comes up and they have to play that game. They lose it in a shootout with Yaroslav Halak getting hurt midway through. And who else? Adam Gutt, former Canuck, patient zero in the biggest COVID outbreak in, the, in North American pro sports. He scores the overtime winner. And from there, from there, you knew. Like the Canucks could, at that point, the Canucks could afford to drop like two points the rest of the way. Like they, they really, mar- the margins were so tight. Um, they couldn't afford to drop one against Ottawa, right? Like that yeah. was one they absolutely needed, particularly as they had a really tough road slate games against Minnesota and Calgary remaining. You knew they weren't going to get every point the rest of the way. They could not afford to drop those points. That rescheduled game looms large in my memory. And in fact, in how the Canucks ultimately came so tantalizingly close, recaptured the imagination of the market, brought positive vibes back to Rogers Arena, and nonetheless found themselves disappointed at the end of the year yeah it is striking just looking back at the game log for the last few months of the of the season last year you know we've heard Bruce Boudreau talk about the win the week thing but it really wasn't Mm. that it was more like we're gonna win six of seven we're gonna win seven in a row then we're gonna lose six of seven right and then we're gonna do it again on the other direction it wasn't we're gonna steadily win three of four time out of you know time after time after time to climb back in the race it was uh, a couple of months of these wild wild swings before we get to the end of the season and some of the things that transpired, I do just want to touch on the the Mott and Hammonick Dermot deals and kind of what our, I think our reaction was at the time, what we thought maybe it would tell us about this front office and how they plan to appar- uh, operate and, and whether or not those lessons still hold up. And, you know, my takeaway from the Tyler Mott deal was just an, an awareness, a very accurate awareness, a, a warranted awareness of how this team cannot afford to let UFAs go for nothing, right? You cannot go past the deadline with a UFA that has value around the league. And the ultimate cost or the the price that they got back for Tyler Mott, I think it's fair to say was underwhelming for some people, right? It's a, a fourth round pick in this upcoming draft. So not the draft that was coming up right after that deadline, but a year down the road. But what it signaled was, you know what? If we're not sure we can sign this guy, yeah, we really like him. But we have to make this deal. We cannot afford to lose the value of letting him become a UFA. Now, that's going to loom large going into this deadline, obviously, with guys like Luke Shen, uh, before we even get into Bo Horvat (laughs) as pending UFAs. (laughs) Right. Well, you know, the other thing I think it presaged, because you're right. I I mean, we were on the radio that day, and I remember (laughs) the reaction was uh, apoplectic, right? But it was consistent with the market for fourth line forwards, right? Some guys like Delorier who, who fought or had a more unique profile went for a third, but for the most part, depth wingers, fourth line forwards um, cost this price at the deadline. And it was lower than what we're used to. And in retrospect, it was a canary in the, in uh, a coal mine deadline sort of signaling what was about to happen to the market for wingers, right? which ultimately I think was a big story, a big underlying factor that led the Canucks to an offseason in which more stasis was maintained, right? The status quo was far more closely hewed to than we had any expectation of at the time. 
And I think part of that's a great point about the winger market because that is a huge part of the story with guys like Connor Garland and Brock Besser and the spot the Canucks find them uh, find themselves in with those players now. And the other part of it is I think there was the expectation for the fireworks, right? The blockbuster deals. And instead, typically, what we've seen from this front office is much more similar to the 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 Hamannick and Dermott duo deals, right? It's okay, you got a little bit cheaper, but you also took back some salary. You did you got a future asset, but then you immediately flip it for a player that's kind of in that twenty four age range that you think maybe you can develop something into. They're cheap now, but you don't exactly know what their future is, and you know it's. I think all of those deals in isolation, with maybe the exception of the Riley Stillman one, which is a little different because it's a cap, it's more of a pure cap dump, uh, with Jason Dickinson going and going the other way, or a, or a pure salary dump. Yeah, but you look at you know Dermot Bear, even the Studnika deal, they all. Uh, there's things to like about all of those players, right? There, there's things to like about all of those deals, and, and we've talked about. The one thing I think you can say pretty certainly about this front office is they've done they have a good track record of identifying these cheap players towards the bottom of the roster. But you look back at it now with the benefit of everything we've seen transpire since then, and it does feel a little bit like, you know, the foreshadowing of these are the moves we're going to see, right? We're not going to see those big moves. We're going to see these much lower leverage, lower stakes moves that are nice, but even even taken all together, do they really move the needle for this team? Right. The, the idea of identifying good hockey players who are affordable and doing a good job of that being perhaps insufficient mm. to address the big picture deficits that this franchise is still coping with. And, and I think as we end this year, Big questions still remain on that front, even if we like what we've seen from the likes of Bear, Stadnika, Neil Zaman, Andre Kuzmenko, right? A bevy of affordable um, players that this organization has brought in who've contributed well in sort of marginal bottom of the roster roles. But the big question, the big picture questions still linger uh, above this franchise, and we can get into that further as we continue our year in review on the other side. Just before we get, we take a quick break. So we'll, we'll kind of, uh, we'll wrap up the season, the end of last season here, mm. and then we'll save, you know, the summer and, and then into this season for the next segment in our year in review here. But I want to talk about the end of that season and then what happened right after that, which was the end of season press conferences from first Bruce Boudreau and then Jim Rutherford and Patrick Alvin, which was really the beginning of, I think, one of the dominant stories over the last six months with this team, which is the friction and the disagreements between the front office and their head coach, Bruce Boudreau. And I remember that day when Jim Rutherford and Patrick Alvin were speaking. And remember, there was so much conversation about, are they going to do an extension with Bruce Boudreau, right? And it seemed, yes, like they would. He just had this incredible run with the team. He's got this great track record as an NHL head coach. Why wouldn't you do an extension with him? And I think it was our guy, Batch, who asked Rutherford about that. And everyone, I think, was expecting just kind of a, a run-of-the-mill, perfunctory answer. And we almost had, like, I was listening to it, and I almost was confused. Like, did I hear Rutherford right when he said, no, we're not going to do an extension with him? And I think maybe even you followed up at some Clarified. point. Yeah, just to get I clarity. I was like, whoa. Because whoa, it was whoa. so surprising. <laughs> it was like, wait, excuse me? Yeah. You just, you said no flat out? That's not happening? And, and then that was also the first time that we'd really heard explicitly publicly the structure criticism, which has really come to dominate mm. the discourse around Bruce Boudreau as well. Yeah. And, you know, I remember, so I remember the emotion. Sometimes you remember your emotional reaction to something more than you remember the, the precise words that were said. 
And I remember coming away from that availability fired up. Like I just thought to handle the availability in that way, to have the conviction to present your vision of the team, your view of how they played, that it was all Demko, that in fact the structure was a problem. Uh, considering how popular Boudreaux was, I just thought that took real gumption. Like, I thought that took real stones from Canucks management, considering the conversation that had dominated the market around this the four mm-hmm. or five month snow day that the Boudreaux era had represented to that point. And, you know, obviously, everyone who's listened to our show over the course of the past year knows uh, that I had agreed. <laughs> Rutherford had probably gone further than just about anyone in our market except me in terms of saying what, you know what what they thought was going on on the ice and I remember coming away and thinking that was a clear-eyed assessment and it took real guts to tell this market exactly what they were seeing despite the popularity of the head coach and the the way that the fans had bought in to the late season run I, I that was my dominant emotional reaction and more than anything else as I consider what those end-of-season availabilities meant, there's two things that stand out to me. One was being really impressed that Rutherford and Alvin had had the sort of cojones to stand in there and tell a, t- tell a city and a market that had been excited by this end-of-season run, hey, we're not buying. We're not buying this. I thought that was immensely impressive. And then, of course, the other thing I remember quite well from that was Brock Besser's emotional... Right. Uh, conversation about his father's health, uh, what that had meant to him this season, Um, you know, really struggling to speak up on the dais. I'd sort of understood that he'd been dealing with this all season. I'd had a sense that it had been worsening uh, considerably behind the scenes and that it had weighed heavily on him and his teammates. But to see it presented in public like that, uh, to see the outpouring of support for the Besser family from this fan base, uh, the reminder of how much some of these players mean to those of us who've watched them play and, and fans in particular, um, you know, that that's something that strikes me powerfully. And of course, uh, Duke Besser ultimately passed away over the course of the summer. Um, our, our thoughts, of course, going out to the Besser family as it was a very difficult year for Brock. We will continue our Canucks 2022 year in review up next. We'll get into the draft, free agency this summer, and then, of course, everything that's transpired this season already. Thanks for listening to Canucks Talk, brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment, your Kubota all-star team, avenuemachinery.ca, douglaslakeequipment.com. You're listening to Canucks Talk, brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment, your Kubota all-star team, avenuemachinery.ca, douglaslakeequipment.com. For now, we will continue and wrap up our 2022 Canucks year in review. And I, I want to fast forward. We talked about the end-of-season availabilities from the players, the coach, the the front office, uh, to wrap up the last segment, Drance. I want to kind of fast forward to the two big tentpole dates of the offseason, which is, of course, the draft and free agency. And I know there was some movement and some player acquisition in between the end of the season uh, and the and the draft for the Canucks, but I, I kind of want to deal with all of the additions in one in one go here. But let's start with the draft, and I'm not going to go, you know, we're not going to go through and grade the draft class. It's still too early for that. But I think the draft was just another example of Okay, we're coming up on this moment where anything seems possible. Is some, who's who's JT Miller going to go to? What's going to happen at the draft this year for the Vancouver Canucks? And what happens is nothing. JT JT Miller stays put. There's no movement of draft picks. There's no acquisition of extra draft picks. It was as by the book a draft as you could possibly have. 
It was. And, you know, we so we're starting with the draft, but I do think some context needs to be thrown into, sure. which was the club's pursuit and successful landing of Andre Kuzmenko. And there was a lot of interesting information to glean from that pursuit, in particular, the fact that the Canucks sold him on a long term vision for the club club. Right. When I really got to understand that when Alvin and Boudreaux sat down with Kuzmenko in uh, Detroit or in in Michigan when Kuzmenko visited Vancouver um, you know part of the pitch was not just this season and the opportunities that he'd get but really the long-term vision of him playing in Vancouver and and you know I remember in the lead up to that really understanding and getting more intel on how the Canucks were pitching Kuzmenko and that in addition to the Besser settlement really driving for me this thinking that look there's got to be uh, a sense that the Miller situation is coming to a head. You know, I, I also believe that the organization had some urgency in trying to get it resolved at the draft, even though they ultimately didn't. There, there was definitely a sense of urgency in terms of shaping their approach, and I think that also that urgency came to bear later in the summer when the club decided to extend him. In terms of the draft itself, you know, Montreal. Uh, host, hosting development camp. Like one thing that stood out to me a lot when I think back to that draft was, you know, the club made changes in their scouting department, their amateur scouting department, not insignificant changes, but also not really significant ones, right? Like there was, I think, five or six scouting departures. Um, but for the most part, there wasn't a ton of incoming, like there, it, it wasn't as big a sea change. Mm-hmm. as in, in the amateur scouting department as it had been in other areas of the Canucks op- operation, right? Um, the director of amateur scouting remained in, in Todd Harvey. Uh, you know, Ron DeLorme was still deeply involved, and the draft class itself looked a lot like some of the draft classes we've seen in the later sta- stages of the Benning era. You think about, you know, the project picks, right? The The emphasis on size, skating ability, the lack of emphasis on what league right? The player had produced it. Uh, you can draw a straight line from Yoni Yermo to Danila Klimovich to Reed Gardner, for example. Um, the the club's fourth round pick or fifth round pick, I can't quite remember, from the 2022 NHL entry draft class. So, you know, more than anything, the draft itself felt like the first sign that, hey, even though there's been big changes and even though we're expecting bigger changes ahead, maybe we should buckle up for something that looks a little more different, a little more, I I hesitate to use the word stagnant, but a little more consistent with some of how this organization has operated, uh, even prior to making the significant changes in leadership. And as you mentioned, Andre Kuzmenko, a huge part of that part of the calendar for the Vancouver Canucks. I mean, we're seeing it pay dividends on the ice. It's, you know. Yeah, he's good. Yeah, he's really, I I mean. He's good. He's fun. We'll talk a little bit more about the Kraken game later in the show, but I thought he had a really fantastic game uh, last night in particular. (laughs) I thought it was one of his more maddening ones in that, well, we'll get get into it. it. We'll get into it. there There were moments for the first time where I was like, oh, man, I don't know about that. A piece of defensive work, but you can't deny what he can do offensively. But, you know, he is the obviously the crown jewel of a strategy that we heard a lot of talk about from the uh, from the front office, right, which was supplementing the team's lack of prospects with European free agents, uh, NCAA free agents, which we didn't see, but also uh, CHL free agents, right? And we saw the other two categories, obviously, with Andre Kuzmenko, plus Neil Zaman, Arshdeep Baines signed out of the WHL, uh, and Philip Johansson, who we are 
less familiar with still playing in Europe as well. But, you know, the early returns, obviously, on Andre Kuzmenko, that, you know, that's not such so much a matter of identification by the front office, but they did win a very competitive process to sign Andre Kuzmenko and bring him to Vancouver. But you look yeah, at even two-thirds the, of the league was in on it. Yeah, so it exactly. wasn't a secret. But you still get you still get points for landing him. I mean, that's where you get the majority of your points because it's not an easy um, that's not an easy gauntlet to run to be one of one at the end of the day. Uh, additionally, you get points uh, in my view for being among the two thirds of the league that recognize that he could be an impactful player. Uh, there were very good teams with compelling situations to sell that didn't believe in the player being a, a day one contributor. Didn't didn't believe in taking that chance. Uh, I think that's looking like a mistake three months in. To put to say it mildly, I think that I think that's looking like a mistake is me putting it far too tactfully. <laughs> yeah, and then I mean they put him in a position to succeed, right? He has played so much with Elias Pettersson, and that's obviously helped. But he's not just a passenger either. They've put him in a position to succeed. He's run with the no, opportunity. They they've handled the Kuzmenko thing from beginning to this point extremely extremely well, and they're reaping the rewards of it right now. But, you know, you even look at, obviously, the less glamorous names, and we'll see how somebody like Arshdeep Baines develops, Philip Johansson, if he comes over next year. But, you know, hey, the fact that Neil Zaman has been an everyday player, and we can debate what his overall impact is, but to pluck your everyday fourth-line center from European free agency and have him come in and win a spot in training camp and kind of establish himself as a guy who's earned the trust of your coach for a team that is as shallow at center, especially when JT Miller's not playing there, as the Canucks can be, you know, that's a major addition as well. And it gets back to the point we've made, which is the ability to identify and acquire cheap talent that can fit on your roster. That has been a real early strength of this front office. And it's something that's going to have to continue as well, right? Like, it's not just... Accelerate. It's You're not just, you know, one Neil Zaman. You need to be able to find more guys like Andre Kuzmenko. You need to be able to find guys who can play higher up your lineup while also yeah. making sure you kind of flesh out the bottom part of your roster with these players because they're not coming from your prospect system in the traditional route for a little bit here. No, and and so we'll get into that uh, a little bit more um, as we get into this season, I think. But let's let's touch on free agency yep. because this was another moment. You know, the Lazar deal uh, was was a piece of and the, of you know what you're talking about, right? The the good player who's affordable who can flesh out your roster on the lower end. But the McKay of signing was a really fascinating one, particularly because it was expensive. The club hadn't, uh, to that point, um, moved any salary, right? Which was sort of one of the big stated goals of, of Alvin and Rutherford was cap sanity. Mm -hmm. um, and yet here they were making a big commitment, which was going to impinge on their ability to commit money into next season with players like Bo Horvat and JT Miller at the time still unsigned, right? So that was one of those deals too that looked and felt familiar right that felt a piece of what we've seen this organization do in the past spend luxuriously on a middle six forward when the market opens as opposed to some of what I think a lot of people had expected based on the front office's words and and sort of what they led us to expect from them um, that was another departure and another moment where, you know, I think eyes, eyebrows began to furrow a bit like, hey, is this going to be as different 
as perhaps we'd expected. The other thing we should mention here as part of free agency, and you know, it, it's not free agency, but it's around this time frame, is the Brock Besser extension. And that's something you and I covered on our show at length, right? And you know, we both argued that look, this is a bad situation, but the best thing you can do is reach a reasonable extension and hope that Brock Besser rebuilds his value. And since that has happened, right, you've had a lot of people very frustrated with Brock Besser's performance this season who have kind of said, why on earth did they extend him? I still think with the information available at the time, it was the right course of action. The one argument I think you could make against that, and it's something you touched on earlier, which is just how the market for wingers has developed around the NHL. And Mm -hmm. could you have had a little bit more foresight to see where that was going and maybe work out, you know, you cut your bait with Brock Besser in a way rather than saddling yourself to to this extension. I'm not sure I buy that argument no, it, the the Monday morning quarterbacking on the Besser decision is one thing that sort of lingers now first of all if you look at scoring like scoring over the course of the calendar year um, you know Besser still scored at a 56 point per 82 game pace over the course of the last 12 months right so we're still talking about a guy who's producing very much in line with his career rates uh, for this team still like still um had a nice goal last night at the net front, right? The the key thing with Besser is this wasn't a simple player personnel decision. The club had backed themselves into a corner with a bridge contract that had a wildly mm-hmm. high QO. And so really the way to approach it was to look at it as a value resuscitation project. This wasn't a pure hockey decision. This was a, this was a protect your asset value decision. Um, and the Canucks approached it the right way with the exception of, um, you know, by the time you bring in Kuzmenko and by the time you do not move on from any of uh, your more expensive players, whether it's JT Miller, whether it's Garland, what have you, you create a situation where Besser's an overpaid redundant piece and not a fixture on PP1. Well, how do you execute on the asset rehabilitation, <laughs> asset value rehabilitation project um, if the log jam in front of him and particularly the log jam on PP1 remains in place? Right. So it, it's almost like a good a good idea, a good plan, the right way of doing it uh, by half. Uh, it's just that in order to fully execute it, opportunity, more opportunity needed to be carved out. And when that didn't happen, and I think that didn't happen largely because of what we saw with the market for wingers falling out, guys like Bjorkstrand being free, guys like Pacioretty having negative value on and on. Right. I mean, it was yeah. really a sea change in player valuation that we saw play out over the course of the season or over the course of this offseason. Uh, you know, I think once that sort of hand tied Vancouver's ability to make changes as deep as they wanted that that that's where the Besser strategy the Besser asset value rehabilitation project sort of fell short so the next big moment in the Canucks offseason obviously is the JT Miller long-term extension uh, seven years eight million dollars per season for JT Miller and that comes just at the start of September so still a couple of weeks uh, before training camp and it really comes pretty much out of nowhere (laughs) there were not a lot of signs you know it felt like this was going to be something that would linger on into the season maybe we'd be going into you know this upcoming trade deadline season and still talking about where is JT Miller going to go it could have been a distraction and instead it is okay he is here for the long term on a big money contract and you know, that's far and away the most significant move that this front office has made uh, so far in their tenure here. Yeah, I think it, I mean, 
in a lot of ways, this was a decisive moment, I think, for this new era of Canucks hockey. Uh, I think there was a sense internally, well, I don't think, there was a sense internally that the club could not afford to go into this season at risk of losing both Miller and Horvat. And Horvat contract talks had stalled over the course of the summer, despite opening the season, opening the summer with a ton of optimism, a, a large consensus of the industry believing that a deal was going to get done at some point. Those talks stalled. The club backed into doing the Miller deal instead. And, you know, their view of it was, why would we save cap on our good players? Let's keep trying to find ways to carve out flexibility uh, with some of our overpaid supporting pieces. And that remains the plan today. Um, the problem is, is that you still need the cap flexibility and those deals haven't been found yet, right? There's still work to be done to find ways to shed salary from a Pearson or a Myers or a Besser or a Garland. And so... You know, agreeing to the Miller extension prior to the summer or prior to the season really did lock the Canucks prematurely into a win now window. Uh, and I don't know that the club's, well, I don't, it's not that I don't know. The club's performance hasn't justified that stance, right? It's not about Miller, who is the Canucks' leading scorer at the moment in the year 2022, right? 92 points in 79 games to this point in this calendar year. Amazing stuff from an extraordinary player. But, you know, it was never about Miller. The caution, the the second guessing about that extension was never about Miller as a player. It was about, does it make sense for a team this far from contention to lock up a 29-year-old who's going to be 30 when this new deal starts, right? And to this point, I think the club's performance has strongly suggested that the timing was wrong on that extension. So a few more minutes here of our 2022 year in review for the Canucks season, and you know, so they, they signed the JT Miller extension a couple of weeks later, it's training camp, the preseason gets going. And looking back now, you could kind of start to see the cracks in the foundation already appearing in those moments. Now, I don't think we really realized it at training camp, but we've since heard from Jim Rutherford. They didn't like their training camp. They didn't think it was very good. We knew in preseason, they were really frustrated by some of the performances, some of the effort they saw, even in preseason games. And then the season opens Seven-game losing streak, including multiple, an incredible streak of blowing multi-goal leads in games. And it feels like, you know, immediately with the JT Miller signing, the ink barely dry on the contract. As you say, things go, well, I'll say things go off the rails. And as you say, the performance of the team not justifying that extension. And we're kind of right back in right back on the roller coaster, the up and down roller coaster of Canucks hockey, which we became so familiar with. And the echoes and the parallels of the, you know, the final months and weeks of the Travis Green and Jim Benning era to what we saw for the first couple of months of this season were very, very striking, Drancer. So really quickly, I'll, I'll go through this fast because there's a few moments that stand out to me. The, the first is, you know, they go through training camp and it's that scrimmage and the rug gets stuck on the ice, Right. And then Besser's not playing in the scrimmage. And then Mikheyev gets hurt in the first preseason game. And then Dermot leaves practice, right? And then <clears throat> the injuries really start to spitball. And then, of course, there are, um, you know, uh, affidavits signed um, in family court in British Columbia uh, by the four adult children of Canucks owner Francesco Aquilini uh, accusing um, him of, uh, of domestic violence. Uh, the league declines to investigate. And from there, the vibes of this season, for me anyway, like that was the moment where uh, the accumulation of stuff once again sort of emphasized that this was, 
you know, not necessarily going to be smooth sailing. And, and of course, things only worsen from there, right? You've got now, now we're sort of, what, three, three months into the season. The club is 25th in the NHL in point percentage. They're already seven points out of a, of a playoff spot. The uh, Tucker Pullman has become re-injured. Uh, we've got, you know, significant drama around the Bo Horvat extension, yep. right? Significant drama around uh, the Boudreaux, Boudreaux's future with the organization, or not even significant drama. There's a sense that this is it for, for Boudreaux, almost no matter what occurs d- down the stretch here. Um, so, you know, there, there was an increasing sense of toxicity, and, and, and that was, of course, punctuated further, too, by the Human Rights Tribunal complaint filed by Canuck staffer Rachel Dory, who was first moved to the coaching staff and then ultimately let go. Um, it's been a fall to forget for this organization in just about every respect, both on and off the ice. And again, sort of the, the trends we discussed, right? The change, the, the promise of change that we entered 22, 22 in um, really sort of being dashed as the year went along. And additionally, this idea of an organization in the way of the hockey team's success, something that I, I think we leave this year with a, a sense of, um, you know, there's a robust sense of that now that certainly I, I think was hinted at at the very outset of the year with the postponement of that Ottawa Senators game, a, a postponement that proved costly on a number of fronts if the club's goal was truly to push all chips into the middle to make the playoffs. And in the middle of it all, Elias Patterson thriving, Bo Horvat racking up the goals, still bright signs on the ice, but the overall questions about the direction of the team loom large, two. much as they did at this time last year. Can I do two more quick things? Go two ahead. more quick amazing stats from the 2022 calendar year. Bo Horvat, 42 goals in 69 games. That's a 50-goal pace Woo! per 82. Let's go. In the 2022 calendar year. So Bo Horvat, as, as the, you know, first of all, he, he enters this season or he enters the calendar year in COVID protocol. You'll remember he has three points in eight games, leading to that 7-3 demolishing by the Anaheim Ducks. Lots of hand-wringing oh, about yeah. Bo Horvat's form. And since then, he's been on an unholy tear, the likes we've barely seen in this market since the days of Pavel Bure and Alex McGillney from a goal-scoring perspective. Uh, And truly, that's the historic comp we're talking about for a Canucks player. I mean, that's what Bo Horvat accomplished in 2022. A tip of the cap to the Canucks captain, a a really amazing 2022 performance for him. And additionally, Quinn Hughes, I know there are people wondering, uh, is he having that good a season this year? But, But listen to this. Quinn Hughes, over the course of 2022, 69 points, nice, in 72 games. That's a per 82 game pace of 79 and 82. That's amazing for an NHL defenseman. Quinn Hughes racking the points up in the calendar year. That will do it for our 2022 year in review. It's a Canucks Talk takeover of Halford and Bruff. Uh, we'll turn the page next. We'll talk a little NFL with the Moj. He stops by. Make sure you get your uh, Ask Us Anythings in as well. We'll try to pitch some by the Moj uh, if we have a chance. Thanks for listening to Canucks Talk, brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment, your Kubota all-star team, avenuemachinery.ca, douglaslakeequipment.com. You're listening to Canucks Talk, brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment, your Kubota all-star team, avenuemachinery.ca, douglaslakeequipment.com. As we await uh, the presence 
of the Moj. Uh, can, feel free to keep getting your talks in. We'll uh, we'll get more into the game uh, after we chat with the Moj as well. Drancer, uh, before we get uh, Moj on, what did you what did you think of the Zach Wilson meltdown <laughs> on Thursday Night Football last night? Oh, I mean, I mean, I, it, amazing. Like, first of all, it was incredible. <laughs> But uh, but you know Zach Wilson, it seems to me is almost in a bad spot because the Jets are a good team, right? Like they don't need a really good quarterback; they need a game manager. They need you know uh, just someone who's able to get the ball to like really good weapons and not um, be the reason you lose. And I I still look at Zach Wilson as a guy who you can see it when he makes great plays. Like there's still a ton of talent there. It's just they can't afford to let him miss these layups. They can't afford to let him suck and learn the league because they're so good and they're actually chasing a playoff spot and the defense is amazing and their weapons are amazing. And and, and I sort of wonder if that puts additional pressure on him that he's not ready for. I, I just feel like if they move on from Zach Wilson, if last night was the end of the Zach Wilson era, and it probably should be considering how close that Jets team is to being a juggernaut, frankly, like really dangerous... Um, you know, I, I won't be shocked if that's not the last act of Zach Wilson in the NFL, even if it is for the for Zach Wilson with the Jets. Now joining us on the line, he is a presentation of West Coast Auto Group. You hear him every Friday here on Halford and Bruff. He is the Moj. Moj, what's going on? Thanks for making time for us. Oh man, it's cold, isn't it, fellas? Hopefully everybody's staying warm and everybody's staying safe. Yeah. I you would dance, forget football. I want to talk hockey. Hey, if let's you, go. If you want to pitch some questions by Drancer, feel free, Moj. You know, guys, I'm writing a column for Black Press right now a couple times a week, and I'm doing a piece today, actually. And I'll, I'll tell you, I, I, right now, i got to believe this is the most frustrated um, fan base I've seen during the Canucks' existence because I don't think they have Wow. Hope, right? And, and I'll say that because there are some dark times. You know, if you do your math, I mean, this is an organization that only had two over 500 seasons in their first two decades of existence. But mm. there was always hope. They're, they're always, you know, you always kind of felt that somehow, some way, they would turn things around. But I think, you know, you, you go on Twitter and you read some of the stuff that's going on there with the fan base. You see some of the poll questions that have been out there. And I think the, the, the lack of hope all starts with ownership. The fact that, yeah, you can change players, you can change coaches, you can change regimes, general managers, scouting departments. But at the same time, the one common denominator that you've seen over the last 10 years with five coaches and three GMs has been ownership. And I just think right now this is the most frustrated, I don't want to say apathetic because they still have emotion, but, man, this is a fan base that's just – I think it's it's almost given up hope with this hockey club. Mo, do you know what I think happened is when the changes all happened last year, right? I think fans were kind of saying, all right, now everything's going to be different. There's going to be these big changes. And instead, it's been largely more of the same. And that's just so deflating. And that creates that sense of frustration that you're talking about. Yeah. And, you know, you look at the roster, it's... You know, it's like baking a cake when you build a team, right? You might have all the ingredients, but you have to have the right amount of ingredients. And right now, when you look at the Canucks, you know, you kind of break down their roster. You know, okay, he's not a bad player. Okay, he's good. Like, he's okay. But when you add it up as a whole, it, it's just not getting the job done on a consistent basis, particularly when it comes to the defensive side of the, the, the game. You know, I talked to one NHL scout a couple weeks back, and I said, so what's your take on the Canucks? He goes, well, their, their defense isn't strong enough, and their forwards aren't good enough defensively to compensate for their lack of, you know, talent on the blue line. So, 
it's just, like I said, it, you know, since following this team when they came in the league in 1970, uh, I just look at this fan base right now and I think to myself, this has to be probably the lowest they felt in terms of hope, in terms of having that hope to, in a long, long time. Moj, we've been doing a, a year retrospective, 2022 in, in retrospect. The Vancouver Canucks record over the course of this calendar year to this point, 81 games played, 90 points. That's a 556 point percentage, good for 17th in the NHL. Is there something about being smack dab in the middle that you think adds to this hopelessness? I think you're bang on with that because what you, what did you write last year about the Flames? The sea of eternal me- mediocrity, right? That, <laughs> I mean, that's when you think about this Canuck team. It's just like, you know, and I wrote a piece a couple of weeks ago looking at Tampa Bay and Colorado. I mean, both of those teams, I mean, they went out there and they, they paid the price. I mean, Colorado missed the playoffs, what, six out of seven years? Tampa Bay missed the playoffs a whole bunch of years. When you look at their leading scores last year in the playoffs, the top four scores on both mm. teams were drafted by those organizations. How did they get those players? Well, by being pretty bad and getting a land of Scott high <laughs> or getting them a McKinnon yeah. high, right? I mean, you, you have to pay the price and, and get that pick in the top two or three that gets you that franchise or generational player. And, and the Canucks with this, you know, this sea of eternal mediocrity by always being about 500 and just, you know, kind of knocking on the door to get into the playoffs. And, you know, if they do, they get bumped in the first round. You don't get those generational players, those franchise players there. I mean, yeah, they got lucky with Pedersen at five, I guess. But still, you get the idea. You need to be bad to get some good players. And right now, the Canucks just aren't bad enough. Well, what's amazing about Colorado and Tampa Bay, too, is you've got this, like, you know, it's it's easy to say now that they've won cups that those are model organizations. But there's been a wild amount of disappointment that those organizations have endured too. You think about Tampa Bay makes the East, uh, Eastern Conference Final, Game 7 of the Eastern Conference Final in 2011, and then miss the playoffs three of the next four years, right? Uh, make the Cup Final uh, in 2016, and then miss the playoffs again twice before going on a historic regular season that ends in a sweep. And then and yet through it all, one coaching change Iserman departed, but they promoted his lieutenant a, a wild amount of stability. Meanwhile, in Colorado, like since 2013, you know, there were like there was a point where both the Canucks GM was Mike Gillis and the Avalanche GM was Joe Sackick. And Joe Sackick only recently moved up from being the GM. Like he only recently gave up the GM role to make sure that he kept Chris McFarland. But there's been a wild amount of stability in those organizations relative to a Canucks team that over the same span of time has gone through Gillis, Linden, Benning, and now Jim Rutherford. How, how much do you think that is sort of reflective of the ownership factor? The more things change, the more they stay the same factor that you, th- you see creating hopelessness in Vancouver. Well, well, I think the other thing, too, is when you look at these teams, right, um, you're right. I mean, we can talk about Tampa and Colorado. We can also talk about Buffalo, which has been completely inept, has suffered, and has really done, you know, they've had their issues. But Here's the thing. you got to be a bad team for a while, but you have to have the right people making those franchise-altering decisions, the right people bringing in the right coaches, having the right scouting staff, having you know the wherewithal to make the right draft picks or acquire the right trades via, or acquire the right players via free agency or trade. So, yeah, okay, you can be bad, but you better have somebody smart 
who can lead you out of the wilderness and make you a competitive team like Joe Sackick did. I remember, remember guys when Sackick had Duchesne as a trade chip, and people were waiting and waiting and waiting, and he said, I'm not making a deal until I feel it's a good deal. He was extremely patient, and he made a blockbuster deal that set up the organization moving forward. So it's, like I said, you just have to have the right people in place to lead you out of the wilderness. And, you know, right now with the Canucks, do they have the right people? Time will tell. We're talking to the Moge here on uh, Halford and Bruff Sportsnet 650. You want to do a couple of uh, couple football questions here, Moj? Or... Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we'll start with a real low light. We were just talking about it before we got you on the line. Zach Wilson, that was tough to watch last night on Thursday Night Football. Yeah, it is. And, you know, the one thing, and you know, you guys have been around athletes at the professional level. I mean, these guys invest so much. They, They, you know... People just think that they go out there and they kind of go through the motions or something. I mean, they put in so much hard work in the offseason, during the season. The games are their payoff. That's when they want to excel. That's what, that's what all that hard work is for. And when you go out there and you have the performance that Wilson had and to be booed off the field by the fans, I mean, it, it stings because, you know, what are you working so hard for? Right? I mean, I don't think anybody in the real world has that type of feedback that instant type of feedback i mean unless you want to read the inbox on certain days but you guys get the idea right you know goes out there and you know zach wilson he's going to take this home with him he's going to take this you know the fans will forget it about it in 24 to 48 hours or whatever but zach wilson's going to remember this for a long time hopefully it inspires him to get better and to you know fulfill the potential that he has but the other thing you got to remember too guys with progression progression isn't linear Right. I mean, I always talk about this, that you're going to have situations where you take two steps forward, then you might take three steps back, then you might take three steps forward. So it's a situation with Wilson right now, and his coach talked about it as well, but progression isn't linear. He's going to have highs, he's going to have lows, and right now it just feels like the pressure's getting to him in New York. Moj, Wilson looks to me like a guy with a ton of talent. You can see the wheels. You can see the difficult throws he makes. It just feels like he's so immature when it comes to, like, baseline competence of running an offense. And as a result, on a Jets team that's kind of closer than than you'd think, um, you know, it, it feels like he's sort of worn out his welcome in a way he maybe wouldn't in a more traditional rebuilding situation. Um do you think do you think he's done in New York? Do you think he's done overall? I don't think he's done overall. I mean, when you're what the number two pick overall, you're going to get plenty of chances, fellas. He, you know, he, he might wind up bouncing around the league. I mean, hell, look at Geno Smith. I mean, the guy's 31 and he has a breakout season. Drancher, I dare you to find any analytical model in any sport where you see a player have a breakout year at the age of 31. So, I mean, is Zach Wilson done? <laughs> He's going to get opportunities, and if he finds the right place and the right fit, if he is indeed done in New York, maybe he has the opportunity to fulfill his potential as the number two pick overall in the NFL draft. Uh, Moj, before we let you go, of course, it is an Ask Us Anything Friday here on Halford and Bruff, and uh, I've been instructed to make sure that I include an Ask Us Anything from the listeners for you. So this one is from Austin in Langley, who asks, do you have any cool or unique family Christmas traditions? Uh, well, I'll tell you a story. When I was a kid, my dad passed away when I was 19, so you do the math. It was in the 80s. But the big thing in Serbian culture is to roast a pig on Christmas, right? 
Um, but, and my dad and one of his good friends would always roast this pig like every year. And we had this huge rec room, this huge basement. Well, one year my dad and his buddy are roasting the pig. They start at like 10 o'clock and they get into the line. By about 3 o'clock, the pig was done and so were they. And, like, I'll never forget my mom and my one of my best buddies' moms, like, coming downstairs and they're yelling at their husbands because, like, yeah, okay, the pig's good, but you guys can't even stand, right? <laughs> and I'll never forget that as long as I live because it was just one of those things that you remember, man. It was, it was too funny. Hey, that's fantastic, Moj. And just before we let you go, actually, we have a couple people texting in. Uh, if there's any update or info you can pass along about Nathan Rourke and what his future might hold. Nothing that you haven't seen on Twitter, although it's ironic that uh, somebody decided to ask that because I just texted a couple of people that I know in the NFL within the last half hour trying to get some information on work and where he stands. So maybe uh, if something does come out, I'll tweet that out later today at The Real Moj on Twitter. All right, there you go. You can follow him on Twitter for your latest Nathan Rourke update. Moj, we always really appreciate it. Have a fantastic holidays. We'll, we'll chat in the new year. Hey, guys, Merry Christmas. Best of the season to you. And transfer next time, I want to hear the private transfer intro. Do they still run the private transfer <laughs> intro? The, they've lost your uh, voice uh, over to it, though. But your version's the best one. It's very Leonard Cohen. It's beautiful. No, it's, it's actually awful, and I'm glad they did lose it. But it was done in honor of all your hard work and your great work at The Athletic and on uh, Sportsnet. Thanks, bud. Thanks, Moj. Hey, Best of the season, Tim. Yeah, you as well. That is, of course, Bob the Moj Marjanovic. Uh, Moj on Sportsnet 650 brought to you by West Coast Auto Group. Great service, great selection, just over the bridge in Maple Ridge. Always love chatting with the Moj. Uh, keep getting your What We Learns in. We'll, we'll choose the best one in the next segment. The winner of the best What We Learn submission contest will get tickets to see the Canucks and the San Jose Sharks on uh, December 27th. Uh, you can also keep your Ask Us Anythings coming in as well. I see a basketball one that's just come in that well, I'll put to you at some point, Drancer. But we should. I mean, we did our year in the review. Uh, we should touch on the game that we saw last night. And as much as I do want to get into it and kind of break it down, you know, really exciting night, it also feels like you can kind of sum up everything from that game with two words, which is Elias Pettersson, right? Like that was, you could not have scripted a better illustration of the impact Elias Pettersson can have on this team than missing <laughs> the last two games. They lose 5-1. They cut, he, he comes back. He's involved in every single goal, including the shootout winner, for the team to come back and remain undefeated against the Seattle Kraken. Yeah, I mean, was it a 5-1 loss, but with Without, Pedersen? Like, seriously? Uh, honestly, I, I mean, that game had a little bit of everything for any type of Canucks fan. Now, more than anything, it was a good night out for, for any Canucks fan able to be in attendance or any Canucks fan able to buy the Canucks money line at plus 1450, <laughs> which is where it peaked after the <laughs> Myers giveaway on the five, three goal. Uh, but you know, I thought, I thought it was like, I thought the defensive play was abysmal, right? Oh, like no the doubt. Canucks played, the Canucks played so poorly outside of what Pedersen was able to do and occasionally what his teammates were able to do in setting him up, like that JT Miller cross-seam pass to set up the game-tying goal was just sensational in the wake of a game in which you know Miller's line was basically ineffectual. Um, but, you know, it was one of those games like, this is, I think, where our fundamental disagreement comes in too, Jamie, right? And, and although people will be surprised to hear it, like one disagreement we've had 
over the course of this Canucks season is I'm higher on them than you. Yes, I you think are. this team is going to be better than, you know, 84 points. I think they're going to end up missing the playoffs by no more than 10. I think they're going to have a lot of games where they look like they're a- where they're able to stem the tide, where they're able to flatten opponents with that offense, with that power play, with, you know, Pedersen taking over. Um, and, and that game is why, like, it's amazing that the Kraken managed to lose that game considering how much better they looked over 60 minutes, but they don't have Elias Pettersson. The Canucks do. And it showed that was the entire difference last night. Now, by the way, the Seattle Kraken, I think we can now say have a Canucks mental break. Like there's a mental gap there. They can't get over them. And like, there was no reason to lose that game. And yet it felt for me anyway, watching it, I was like, at no point have they stuck a stake in the Canucks heart here. You know, like even the Myers giveaway, I was like, yeah, okay. Pedersen time. And it just felt throughout like Seattle was going to find a way to lose that game. There's just something about the Canucks jerseys when they play the Kraken. The Kraken can't beat them no matter how much more complete they are as a side. Well, and a huge part of it last night for me was Elias Pettersson because I, I 100% believed that the Canucks were going to tie that game, that we were going to go to overtime and potentially a shootout. And a huge part of that was just how dangerous Pettersson was every time the puck was on his stick. But you're right. It's, despite the gap in actual like who played well last night, I was also very convinced that the Canucks were going to come back. Uh, Steven North Sandwich says, you know what? That game was fun. At this point, I'll take great. that. It was great entertainment. The team is still a mess defensively, but as long as we have Pedersen, they're still worth watching. And I think that's another really important, you know, we talk about just his impact on the ice and in terms of driving play and helping the team win. But I do think for a team that's put up a lot of stinkers on home ice as well, just having that one guy that you kind of can hang your hat on from an entertainment standpoint, right? That, hey, maybe I'm not. I'm not thrilled with the direction the team is taking. They're out of the playoff race. Who knows what kind of effort I'm going to see. But Elias Pettersson might have a five-point night. Like, that's a, that's a huge <laughs> advantage if you're trying to convince people to come out and invest in your product. you, uh, you It is. And, you know, uh, but I think it should raise the stakes for what this team needs to accomplish. Like, if Pettersson is this good, if Pettersson can maintain the form he's shown over the 2022 calendar year and this team can't sniff the playoffs with that... Like, that's an indictment. That shouldn't be acceptable. You know, the fact that Pedersen keeps this team watchable is good for business. But the fact that this team can't support a player like that making a run, being put in an opportunity where the games that he's winning with performances like that, you know, uh, don't do more than put them within seven points of the second wildcard spot. Like, that's discouraging. That's really discouraging. And so, you know, for me anyway, the excellence that Pedersen is showing right now, the excellence we've occasionally seen from Demko and Hughes, right? Like that to me raises the stakes of what this team needs to do, of the work that needs to be done to get this team on track from a true results perspective because they've got this impressive, you know, collection of talent, these amazing weapons, and you want to see those weapons come to bear in in games that really matter. Um, for me, you know, Pedersen's form, if more than anything, underlines the distance this team needs to travel and the urgency, the Red Robin level urgency with which they need to to get there. <laughs> uh, Greg Ballack, Laddie has uh, something to add here yeah, as well. Yeah, hindsight's twenty twenty. I know, Jamie, you already said that you fully expected the Canucks to tie that game towards the end. But what did you guys think about the early goalie pull? About two and a half minutes left, Boudreau decides to go for it. I thought it was a strong move. I thought the, the, the definitely pressure ramped up immediately after the net was empty. Yeah. So I well, think I think it, it worked out and it, I think more coaches need to 
that 233 minute range is, is probably when you should be pulling the goalie. I think. If it's you're good. down one. It's good to see the vote of confidence from Bruce Boudreau, yeah. right? <laughs> Since we've heard recently, yeah, I didn't think they were going to score in that game. Now, I know that was a three-goal deficit, not a one-goal deficit. But, yeah, that was absolutely the right time to pull the goalie, and it paid I, off. I, I think you can I think you can pull the goalie earlier, to be totally honest with you, particularly if you get a power play or if you get, like, a really good offensive zone draw with a rested group of top players. Like, if that, if that opportunity comes with three and a half, four and a half minutes to go, you should go for it because that's your best chance to win, especially with the way that, like, you know, Vancouver is not a super deep team. When you're trailing, there's, like, six players you want on the ice that you feel really comfortable with, right? It's not like you can roll three lines yeah. and feel comfortable about them giving you a goal. So, you know, I mean, what you, you don't really want to have, like, an Amon Joshua drives shift at any point, for example, right? So if you're loading up and going for it, like, take your shot within the last four minutes whenever your top players are rested enough to really take their best shot at tying the game. Canucks did a fantastic job. I mean, there was really only one look at an empty net by the Kraken. It was a heavily contested backhand by Jordan Eberle from, from center ice. The Canucks were all over them, six on five. Miller and Pedersen working the half walls the way they do on the power play. They looked great, and that was just a fabulous piece of work from JT Miller, who, who I really had thought was playing poorly all night. But once they both got into that position, you just felt like they had control over the proceedings. Pull the goalie, pull the goalie early. I think Boudreaux manages end games pretty aggressively, like more aggressively than average. He could even be more aggressive in my view, but I think that's actually a strength of his. I think he's got a really good feel for when to um, take his best shot, and I think he does it pretty consistently so long as he's not completely discouraged by what he's seeing from his team. Last text before we break. This one says, Nights like last night really make you believe Petey could be the best player on a cup winner if only he could get the supporting cast. I think that's well put. Keep your thoughts coming in, 650-650 to the Dunbar Lumber text line. Well, the quick chat about the Seahawks with Brady Henderson from ESPN on the other side. Then we'll get into your what we learns and your ask us anythings as well, so hit us up with those. Thanks for listening to Canucks Talk, brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment, your Kubota all-star team, avenuemachinery.ca, douglaslakeequipment.com. You're listening to Canucks Talk, brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment, your Kubota all-star team, avenuemachinery.ca, douglaslakeequipment.com. We're going to have a quick check-in on the Seattle Seahawks uh, with our pal Brady Henderson from ESPN, who, of course, does a great job covering the Seahawks. Brady, thanks very much for making time for us. How are you? Yeah, you got it, fellas. How's it going? Uh, it's going well. We're dealing with weather as much of the continent is right now. Did you were you able to make it to uh, to Kansas City? All right. Um, haven't left yet, but my flight got changed. Uh, it was yeah, I got canceled because of weather. So on a later flight, but uh, gonna get there hopefully late tonight and cover a football game tomorrow that I don't think is going to be all that close. <laughs> uh, but we'll talk about that. But, yeah, yeah, we will. Weather is weather is bad here as well. Well, best of luck with the travel. I know it can be very, very hairy right now. Um, before we get into the matchup with the Chiefs, you know, Geno Smith gets the Pro Bowl nod this week, and obviously a, a tremendous individual honor for the player. And we all know the story of Geno Smith and the season he's having. What does it mean, also, just for the franchise, for the Seahawks as a whole, to see Geno Smith get that honor for this season? Well, I, I think to some degree it is validation of the decision that they made uh, to trade Russell Wilson, you know, believing that he was a declining player. Uh, you know, that was – we forget now. It's easy to forget now just because he's been so bad this year. But that was a really tough decision to make, to trade a, a franchise quarterback, you know, who at 33 years old, 
you know, should have a lot left. And so, uh, but they made that trade and, you know, I say it's, it's validation to some degree because remember pretty much everybody in the building thought that Drew Locke was going to be their guy. And of course that didn't happen. And so um, it's not as though they saw this in Geno Smith. I mean, Pete Carroll certainly saw enough in him uh, to give him a chance to, to win that starting job. But everybody that I talked to with that team thought that Drew Locke was going to be the guy uh, that he should be, get the opportunity to start because, you know, they, they thought they knew what Geno Smith was. They thought they knew that he was, you know, a good backup quarterback. And they thought that Drew Locke as the younger player with more upside uh, or younger, you know, more athletic player had more upside. And yet here is Geno Smith uh, playing at a Pro Bowl level. And, and, you know, this is not like he didn't sort of back into this Pro Bowl. This is this is a well-deserved Pro Bowl honor. He was, you know, one of the, the two best quarterbacks in the NFC all season long, uh, along with Jalen Hurts. And so um, it's it's a good thing for the Seahawks. It's an even better thing for Smith, knowing that, you know, he's got the, the contract negotiation coming up. Uh, and having a Pro Bowl on your resume is going to help a lot when you're trying to you know get as much money as possible in that next deal. What's a bigger deal for the Seahawks this weekend in terms of a hypothetical outcome? A miracle win over Kansas City or a Rams miracle win over the Broncos improving the Seahawks draft position? Oh, boy. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, it's I, I think the Rams can beat Denver. I, I just don't yeah, know me if too. the Seahawks can yeah, I don't know if the Seahawks can beat Kansas City. And, you know, this this would – I was talking uh, to some other Seahawks reporters about this, and we were in agreement that this would be on the level of the Beastquake 2010 playoff game against the defending <laughs> champion Saints. Like, this would be that level of upset when you consider everything that's stacked against the Seahawks in this game. You know, missing one of their, I don't know, three, four best players and Tyler Lockett. Uh, you're also down to your third stringers at strong safety in what is probably the the one game where you need to have be really good at strong safety against the best tight end in football and Travis Kelsey. Uh, you know, then you throw in the weather on top of that. Uh, and, you know, obviously Kansas City is way more used to playing in, in really cold weather like this than Seattle. And so uh, there's so much stacked up against the Seahawks that I, I, I just don't see them winning this game. But the good thing for them is that they don't really have to win this game to make the playoffs. There, there's there's a lot of routes that they can go where they could lose this game and still make it. Um, you would almost certainly have to win those next two games at home, which are a lot more winnable than this one. Uh, so I think this is a game where if they survive without any further injury, um, I think they're going to be in okay shape to, to make a run at the playoffs. And playoffs or not this year, Brady, you know, how much does the performance of Geno Smith, but also a lot of the other players on the team and the rookie class in particular, how much does that maybe change what they're looking to do in the offseason compared to where we were, you know, coming into this season where we weren't sure we weren't sure how competitive the team was going to be this year? You know, that, that rookie class, I think, is is a is going to be a nice silver lining to the season, regardless of where it ends up. And you know, if, if they don't make the playoffs, I'd say you could go back and, and look to what the expectations, look back at what the expectations were before the season. This was not a, t- a team that was expected to compete for a playoff spot. And it was a transition year. That's, that's what everybody thought. That's what I thought. And I think that what was, at the time at least, what would constitute a successful season is if you could look at your team and identify a, a young core that looks like it could be the nucleus of a championship team. And with this draft class, um, I think they've got that. Now, I, I do wonder if some of those guys are hitting the, you know, proverbial rookie wall where, you know, you're into game, 
what what is this going to be 15 now remember those guys are used to college seasons that are go 12 13 games and so i think a lot of those guys or some of those guys i think it might be getting tough for them now because they're in a much longer season and so but but at any rate that looks like the nucleus of a really good football team down the road and so um i think that's going to be a silver lining for this team but that said yeah they've got a massive hole on the front seven of their defense and you know for all the talk about well you know they could draft a quarterback at two or three or four wherever that first round pick from denver ends up being i think it's going to be really really hard to pass up on a defensive player because this is probably your one shot to get that stud Mm. you know defensive tackle uh, or edge rusher that you just can't get unless you're picking in the top five, top ten of the draft. Brady, really appreciate the time. Best of luck getting to Kansas City. Enjoy the game and have a safe and happy holidays. All right. Thanks for having me, fellas. See ya. That is Brady Henderson. Thanks, Brady. Does, does a great job covering the Seahawks for ESPN. Uh, final minutes of the show here. Halford and Bruff with, with Drance and Dodd on Sportsnet 650. We'll get into your What We Learns. We'll get into your Ask Us Anythings. As well, it is an Ask Us Anything Friday. I wanted to start with this one uh, from one of our regular. Well, I'm going. I'm doing an Ask Us Anything, Balak. Not what we learned here. We still have to print those out, don't uh, we? I don't know. I don't know how it works. <laughs> you should know that. I think we did. Okay. We just did. So All right. Well, go. we just did. <laughs> I'll start with a question from one of our uh, our regular Canucks talk texters, our guy Chet in Burnaby, who says. Will Patterson set the franchise record for most points in a season for the Canucks sometime in his career, given the uptick in league scoring? So, of course, the record for points in a season belongs to Henrik Sedin in 0910, 112 points. Uh, Elias Patterson, I put this out on Twitter this morning, 94 points in his last 82 games. And that includes a stretch, you know, going all the way back to December and January of last season before he had really turned it on and started to produce at this level. Now, I, I think as you would say, he's he's in his statistical prime right now, Drancer, right? Like the yep. next couple of years, very much his statistical prime. It's it's not a given, but it's certainly not out of the question that he has that kind of everything comes together, his scoring spikes, and he does eclipse that number again, as Chet and Burnaby said, especially when you consider the scoring context around the league. I'm going to fade this take. I say no, and not necessarily because of Pedersen himself, but more because of what's around him. You talk to Henrik and Daniel Sedin about why their scoring spiked in their late 20s, and they'll tell you, first of all, they weren't at their peak. It's not that they had a late peak. They were they were after their peak. It's just that the team around them got so much better. Yeah. And their scoring became a product of how well they played as a team, right? Daniel would say, uh, or Daniel will tell you, I, I would, you know, finish up the night and I would be like, I had an okay game, but I had three points. <laughs> and it was because of what my teammates were doing. It was because of how well we played as a group. Uh, at the end of the day, Pedersen's not going to flirt with Henrik's single season Canucks scoring record until he's got at least four or five defensemen that can put the puck in his hands in stride in the neutral zone. And currently he has one. So next have a lot of work to do to add to their vertical attack to really convert off of just how dangerous Pedersen can be on the rush. The power play is so good that it maybe gives him a bit of a, a bit of a shot, but his, shooting like the, the the issue is is that the power play doesn't run through him it's not mm. really set up to maximize his point structure like think about what Pedersen sees when he receives a pass on that right side half wall right like he's the dominant shooting threat 
but that shot is hard to score on, right? Like it's not a, a sh- it's not a shot that's going to be a super efficient way for this Canucks team to convert. Um, when he gets the puck, right up high, there is another lefty, Quinn Hughes, not a shooting threat from the right side half wall. JT Miller on the other circle, not a shooting threat from the uh, right side half wall, right? N- no, no, neither of those not, guys can one-time the Yeah, puck. not a shooting Horvath threat one off the a pass puck. from Pedersen. Yeah. So so he, his options are shoot, and his playmaking options are down low. Now, he's become immense at that. We saw it twice last night, right? The Canucks created, um, you know, backdoor taps, basically, from Pedersen in that spot. Uh, Besser, the no- most notable one. Uh, but, you know, the... The fact is, is that his playmaking window is narrow. It's it's all directed toward the net, if that makes sense. You see what I'm saying? He doesn't have yep. up high opportunities to create assists. So uh, as such, the power play functions really well with Pedersen demanding attention. But Pedersen's biggest value to the power play is as a playmaker for deflections and as a deterrent force that, that opens up more points opportunities for the likes of JT Miller and Quinn Hughes, who gets to sort of change the direction on where the play is going. As, as such, like he's not set up right now, I think, to really flirt with Henrik's record for, for power play alignment reasons and the overall skill level of Vancouver's blue line and their inability to move the puck. You know another sneaky uh, franchise record that I'm watching? So the record for assists in a season also belongs to Henrik Sedin in that same year, 09-10, with 80 83 assists on the year. Quinn Hughes has 28 assists in 28 games right now. Now he's missed a few games, so that would have to tick up, right? But a lot of what you just said about the power play, I mean, it sets up well for Quinn Hughes because so much of it does run through him on that power play. And again, I'm not saying that would be so cool. He's going to do it, but like he could have like one goal and 83 assists or something. You know what I mean? Like that, what a that's season. totally in play for Quinn Hughes. And that, that, just looking through the kind of franchise records, I was like, you know what? He's that, that is uh, that's one that's in play for Quinn Hughes at some point in his career. I, I, I'll fade that for now, but I agree with you that at some point that could happen. And that one to me actually feels more realistic in the next two years because of how this team sets up and how reliant they are on Quinn Hughes to move the puck. Here's here's one thing, though, that I'd say he needs if he's going to do that. He needs a defenseman, uh, a, like a regular yeah. defense partner that, that brings a little bit more to the table than Luke Shen does, which is not criticism of Luke Shen. Like, Luke Shen knows where his bread is buttered. Um, and he made a really nice play, by the way, like a sneaky nice play to put the puck on net on the Canucks' second goal last night. Uh, he, Shen doesn't make mistakes, and I, I don't think he plays poorly offensively. He's just not a dynamic presence there, obviously. And until Quinn Hughes has a partner who can help him maybe drive a little bit more in terms of offense and maybe contribute a bit more with some point shot goals, I think that's going to be a, a record that's hard for him to match from the back end. Uh, we'll read some what we learns here. Wrist uh, one, a lot of Elias Pettersson. No surprise, what we learns coming in. This one from Riley and Kamloops that says, what we learned, if the Canucks can't fly out of Vancouver for the game today, everyone could just hop on Petey's back and he could get them there. That's from <laughs> Riley and Kamloops. <laughs> but the, the Canucks have arrived in Edmonton and boy, are Petey's arms tired. <laughs> I just flew in. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Fonz in Vancouver says, what we learned watching Elias Pettersson last night was a warm cup of coffee on a cold blizzard day. And he also says, stay safe out there. Everyone appreciate that. Fawns in Vancouver. The mulled, the mulled wine game yes. from Elias The mulled Patterson. wine, some cozy yeah. socks, Christmas music make, on the stereo. Make no mistake. It, it was spicy. <laughs> and at the end of it, the Kraken had a hangover. 
<laughs> uh, goal of game Gary texts in. What we learned is that when the Canucks don't have Pedersen, my kids' under-15 ball hockey team would look like champs playing against them. No. That's from goal of game Gary. <laughs> Listen, and, and here's the thing. Hyperbole much, Gary. <laughs> I love that you're like... You're about to take it like completely literally and like bust out the stats for why no, that wouldn't be completely. the case. This that is wouldn't why be the case. Fifteen year old That's an outrageous team claim. Could not beat the Canucks. <laughs> you hear oh, ruffling I mean, papers in the background. The 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 the, the Canucks without Pedersen could get beaten by Airbud. Like no, no, they couldn't. A dog can't play hockey. <laughs> not with that attitude. Stop it. There's no rule in the rule book. There's no rule. Would a dog There's be no now, rule against a dog playing? Do you know? Do you know that Roger Nielsen, that Roger Nielsen used to use his dog in Peterborough Pete's practices to to show them that his dog could forecheck, uh, could could like maintain his forechecking schemes. He trained his dog to effectively like chase the puck based on various locations, and then he'd bring his dog out for practice and shame his players, showing them that his dog was better at that... executing his forechecking <laughs> schemes than they were. You're making this up. That's a true that story. Absolutely no, no. incredible. One thousand percent true, Roger Nielsen story. Well, now, dog that, could that's my what we learned then, because I had no idea. That's, Before, that's, yeah. that's hilarious. We, we all learned embarrassed professional there. hockey players with a dog. No, no, they were they were they were major junior players. This was it as oh, Peter Brody, Peter Brody, but still, embarrassed children with dogs. Embarrassed children, embarrassed children. Yeah, even worse. In, in line with the holidays, they're spirit. not even making money. <laughs> this dog can play better than you, kids. Um, before we move on, and I will say we're we're given the tickets to the game, two goal goal a game, Gary, and that was uh, a decision by uh, by our producer A Dog. So goal a game, Gary, for his take saying that his kids for under his fifteen hyperbole. ball hockey. Wow, game. Yeah, I knew I knew it would tick you off to answer, but there you go. You're right. He I'm wins upset. the tickets. He wins the tickets. Now before we move on again. Would Airbud be better as a baseball player or a hockey player? Got to be oh, hockey, right? Neither. Baseball, he could do cause, neither. Cause you can't ha- say neither. No, you no, can't it, say neither. It, it could be I'm hockey. saying hockey neither. Skates. Yeah, like, I would say. I would say he can run around. Yeah, though. but on do baseball, that's skates? one less thing to worry about, right? Because with baseball, he's just running around in his paws. On on hockey, he'd be wearing skates. A dog on skates. I don't know. That's a lot, that's a lot to worry about. I think. Do you think he was allowed to? If he was allowed to not play with skates and was put in like. Uh, truly the world's greatest gear like that protected him because I mean you know at yeah. the end of the day an NHL slap shot a dog you don't want it, that hitting a dog but I do think a dog could maybe play goalie if he's incredibly well oh, come protected. on now yeah. <laughs> come on now <laughs> this is what we think That's of your position you this is what we think no, of your no, position I'm, I'm just saying I'm just saying like like getting in front of things dogs are good at like if you ever like I try to play fetch with my dog sometimes and he'll like cut off ball like in the house and he'll like cut off balls at the pass he's like actually quite tricky to get balls by um we've all seen of course the viral dog video who like excels at stopping that plastic puck but if you played a game with like plastic pucks uh, that wouldn't hurt a dog, and that all the shots were like under fifty miles per hour. I think a dog could stop some shots. Their post seals will get ripped apart, Drancer. <laughs> Come on, they can't deal with east west passing. Be sharp angle goals everywhere. What are you talking? Yeah, about? Yeah, no, I'm sorry. I'm not saying they'd be good. I'm just saying physiologically, at least they could do it, as opposed to like trying to skate. Like a dog with four skates, try, it has to learn how to skate, and then has to hold a stick in its mouth. Good luck. No chance. No, oh, not even Airbud. Oh man. Hey, not by the way, even by Air the Bud. way. Have you seen the plot descriptions for the Airbud puppies like spin-offs? I have not. Believe it or not, I have not seen them. 
So the Airbud puppies spin-offs, the puppies are now like in space saving the world. So this is like escalated even There's further. like an Airbud universe. Like every <laughs> Okay, one thing I've learned with having young children is every kids show starts off with like, "Oh, like I'm a I'm like a nurse for my toys and I sew them up when they get rips." And then four seasons in, it's like I've opened the gate to the alternate dimension yeah. where the toys live. And I now lo- I, you know, and it's yeah. like, what is happening? Like, it all escalates a, it's all so fast quickly. It's level escalation. <laughs> yes, there's exactly. this Air Bud cinematic universe that exists now because of that one movie in the 90s. There it's is, amazing. though. And it's all filmed in Vancouver, I think. Amazing. I'm pretty sure, yeah. There amazing. you go. But yes, the yeah, fact like, that they're in space so, is amazing. So by the time you get to Super Buddies, which is the latest one, okay, the buddies find five magical rings from the planet instantly. Superpowers, Butterball gets super strength, Buddha gets mind control, Rosebud gets super speed, B-Dog gets super elasticity, and Mudbud gets invisibility. Together, the buddies must use the ring responsibly with the help of Megasis slash Captain Canine in order to stop a power-hungry extraterrestrial warlord named Commander Drex who wants to take the rings for his own and and gain full dictatorship of Inspiron. The buddies soon learn that they don't need to have superpowers to become superheroes. Please note Drancer is not reading this. He's memorizing. <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> this, is, this is all by memory. That's this actually is where the- this is where the Airbud it's like you start with like dog beats kids in basketball for yeah. a high school team or, or elementary school team, and it's like okay. And by the end, it's like the super buddies use the power rings to defeat Commander Drex, what? and it's like that's still less ridiculous than Airbud coming on as a third string goaltender <laughs> to make the crucial save at the Women's World Cup, much less winning the World Series. MVP. He won MVP. He was the best player in the World Series. Like that's still more ridiculous than the Commander Drex. That's almost what you just explained is almost like exactly the trajectory of Paw Patrol. Where like season one, episode one, it's like the pigs escaped from their pen on the farm, and we have to round them up. And then it's like a meteor crash, and it gave us all special powers. I can shoot fire out of my paws. I'm like this. (laughs) This mayor built a giant robot, and he's trying to take over the town. You're like, what is happening? Why does it have to go this far? Uh, it's it's wild. Drancer, can we please get your thoughts on the chimp from Most Valuable Primate? Yeah, they taught him to um, skate and shoot pretty well. Yeah, but I mean, a, a, a chimp at least, like, they, it doesn't have a poseable thumb, but, like, at least a chimp is, like, humanoid. Like, at least I could see a chimp, you know, <laughs> like, at least, uh, at least a chimp, like, has peripheral vision. Right, like a dog's eyes are at the front of its head. It couldn't possibly swing a bat and connect with a ball, considering the physiology of like holding a thing in your mouth. You couldn't even look at the pitch. You couldn't even look at the pitch. The chip dogs have don't some have eyes IQ. at the side of their heads. Like it's yeah. ridiculous. Could, it's could so you please annoying. make this an athletic article? Oh my like a full breakdown of all the the, the sports movies with animals. <laughs> you guys don't. What is more realistic? A dog and Laddie don't realize this, but this is like not even close to the first time it's come up on Canucks talk. <laughs> oh really? <laughs> like not even close. Oh, th- no, no. This is a bit. <laughs> it's like <laughs> a running bit about how much Airbud annoys Trance. <laughs> it's it's really annoying. It really it genuinely like I I don't mean to say this. Because it's cruel, and I love dogs, but Airbud ruins Christmas for me every year. <laughs> okay, and, wow. And then you come out and say he could play goal. Trying to, what, what do you well, think that's going to do to no, me? No, I'm saying come on. I'm saying it's better. It's I, I'm more likely to believe that than that a dog could skate. Again, like it couldn't shoot because it would have to look away from the puck to wind up and then still connect. Like even shooters can't do that. It's hard. Mm. It's hard to not. It's hard to like shoot without looking down. Rancer has guaranteed lost sleep over this. Guaranteed. <laughs> uh, somebody, I'm, I'm, t- it's going to keep me up all night. 
Uh, somebody texted in that uh, what we learned, you guys are, when it comes to reading the public text, you guys are more inconsistent than the Canucks. And we have once again proven that, upholding the traditions of Halford and Bruff here on their show. Thanks for listening to Canucks Talk, brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment, your Kubota all-star team, avenuemachinery.ca, douglaslakeequipment.com.